I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is working sans culotte because of the heat in a hot summer Birmingham. Today we are joined by the woman that Time magazine described as an outspoken voice of the left, Amanda Marcotte, in Brooklyn, in New York. And we are joined in Burnley, that sometimes renaissance city, the capital of Lancashire, so to speak, by Donald Trump's favourite tweeter, Mike Holden. Hello. Good afternoon. In a week that has seen the 40th birthday of the world's first tissue baby, we ask, is Donald Trump a double agent? Every nation has its infamous traitor. In Norway, it's Vidkun Quisling, the Nazi collaborator. In Britain, it's Kim Philby, the Soviet mole. In America, Benedict Arnold. And now following his summit in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin, the term is being used in relation to the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. But what is treason? And what does history tell us about whether Trump's remarks in Helsinki amount to it? Here are the facts. First, let's review what happened in Helsinki. When asked about foreign interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, for which the U.S. intelligence agencies unanimously blame Russia, Trump sided publicly with Putin. People came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. The comment sparked a global uproar and condemnation from both sides of the aisle in Washington. Former CIA director John Brennan was among the first to float the T-word, treason. Officials and pundits even began speculating whether Russia had something on Trump that would cause him to so publicly side with Putin. Trump later sought to clarify the remark. I said the word would instead of wouldn't. But the damage was done, and in the aftermath, treason became the top-searched word in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online. President Donald Trump said in a tweet on Tuesday that he was very concerned that Russia will be fighting very hard to have an impact on the forthcoming election. Instead of benefiting him and the Republicans as Russia did in 2016, Trump claimed with no evidence that Russia will be pushing very hard for the Democrats because no president has been tougher on Russia than me. Amanda, why is that statement utter hogwash? (laughs) I mean, this is this is classic Donald Trump projecting um, his own insecurities and bad behavior onto other people. And, and he's often really blunt about it. During the debate, I don't know if you remember one of the presidential debates, Hillary Clinton uh, said he could be Putin's puppet. And he's he went off on, no, you're the puppet, you're the puppet, and tried to actually suggest that she was Putin's puppet. So this is very much the sort of thing he does. He's guilty of something and he just sort of puts it on somebody else. And in this particular case, he's trying to confuse the issue by saying uh, Democrats are the ones benefiting from Russian interference when that's just obviously untrue. All right. So, Mike, 
There's a massive chasm opening up between London, Paris and Berlin, uh, between those three cap capital cities in Europe and Washington because of Trump's apparent subservience to Putin. Do you think NATO can survive Trump winning in 2020 if things continue thus? I think the situation we're in at the moment is it's very difficult to predict the future uh, on either side of the Atlantic because uh, Trump, as, uh, as Amanda's alluded to, is, is so unpredictable and so um, aggressive with what would normally be seen as all his allies. With Canada, with Europe, former allies are suddenly getting it in the neck from Donald Trump when he comes to visit. And yet North Korea and, as you say, Putin's Russia seem to suddenly be his, his best friends. It does seem he's got a definite line of attack, if you will, against Europe and against NATO. Amanda, we have had the odd Republican say, what the hell is going on? So we had the Texas uh, Republican, Will Hurd, wrote after the summit, uh, the president's failure to defend the United States intelligent community's unanimous conclusions of Russian meddling in the 2016 election and condemn Russian covert counter-influence campaigns and is standing idle on the world stage while the Russian dictator spouted lies, confused many, but should concern all Americans. Why aren't more Republicans, the party of the flag, the party of true American values, why aren't more Republicans up in arms about your Manchurian candidate? You know, it's interesting that Will Hurd is going there. He's um, he's actually in a swing district, one of the few and in, in still remaining in the country. Um, so it might just be that he feels that the only way to continue to be a plausible candidate in a swing district is to to tack to the moderate to the center location and on that particular issue it, it's where people are alarmed about this russian interference um i think as far as other republicans go they are in often in more red districts they are often more reliant on a rapidly conservative base. They're afraid of primary opponents. They're afraid of losing money. They're afraid of the NRA turning on them. You know, there's a whole list of concerns there. So I, I really think that's that's ultimately what's going on here. Uh, Amanda, if I could ask, uh, you'll know this far better than I am. Um, I'm looking at this from, from our angle and seeing that uh, the midterms are approaching fast. Uh, and if I get this correctly, the uh, uh, the impeachment process that may eventually come round to hit Donald Trump is a political process. It needs the House for impeachment. Is that correct? Yes, the House actually does the impeaching in the Senate. Um, the House impeaches and the Senate votes up or down whether or not they're going to accept the impeachment, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So that's what happened to Bill Clinton in the 90s was he was actually impeached by the House and then the Senate voted it down and he kept his office. I see. Thank you. That kind of uh, goes to what I was uh, thinking, that um, uh, a lot of GOP candidates and uh, existing GOP uh, members in the House seem very, very quiet. But I'm wondering if they'll, everyone is waiting now for the midterms because they know that the Mueller investigation is probably doing the same and waiting for the outcome of the midterms before presenting a firm impeachment case. I don't know that we know that Mueller is waiting for the outcome of the midterms. I certainly think that a lot of people, Republicans on the Hill, believe that he might actually spring the results of the investigation before the midterms. Um, those are the ones that are more paranoid and think he's out to get them, whereas I think um, he's sort of just going to release his results when they're complete. I, I think his historical record shows he's not particularly concerned about these political considerations. That definitely does seem to be the case, that he's just uh, going to the beat of his own drum, Muller, isn't he? Um, but I just want to kind of go back a step and ask you another question here, Amanda, because I'm always constantly surprised by the Republican Party. Well, I'm surprised by the Democratic Party, too. I see themselves see them as somewhat kind of spineless and, and not political animals. Um, but the Republicans seem to be um, somewhat kind of lizard brain in their kind of adherence to whoever is in the White House, if it's their person, so to speak. Considering that the, the generic ballots are looking so unfavourable for Republicans before 
the midterms, do you think that it would be kind of round about maybe September time that we'll get a decisive break where many Republicans who in Congress who are looking like they're going to lose their seats will actually tack to the centre and actually actually will be much more vocally critical, will be vocally critical of Donald Trump then? Boy, I hope so, but I'm going to just go ahead and say no. (laughs) (laughs) I um, I think what we actually are seeing is they have decided for better or for worse that defending and running interference for Donald Trump is their best bet. Now, it may be one of some two 11th level chests on this, but I think that one of the considerations that's going through a lot of their minds is that they may not be able to hold on to the House anymore, that there may be an impeachment um, come January. And in the meantime, all the House and the Senate can do is cram, well, the Senate does this, but that that all that Congress can do is cram as many right-wing Republican judges onto the federal judiciary as they can. And so I think what you're really seeing tactically is that the House is going full-on in its defensive Trump, and they're basically doing so to buy time so that the Senate can unimpeded um, just confirm judges at a rapid rate. Uh, they've, Mitch McConnell is, is confirming judges so fast that he's actually set a record for the most judges confirmed in the first two years of a president's uh, time in office. And, and is that, do you think, the real reason why, or let's say one of the main reasons which a lot of the press and the punditocracy kind of don't really factor into this is that the Republicans are seeing this as a once in a generation opportunity under Trump whilst I have all three levers of government actually to uh, to place a whole load of conservative judges which are going to have uh, an impact on America for the next 20 years. Yes, for whatever reason, um, Republicans see it this way, conservatives see it this way, but nobody else seems to grasp how central packing the courts are to the Republican agenda. It's a very complicated thing, but I think what they understand is that they don't have a Democratic majority, and unless something changes very drastically, they're not going to for at least a generation. So the only way they can kind of enact their agenda and kind of shut down, you know, the possibility of a Democratic majority rule is to take over the federal judiciary and either use those judges to destroy any progressive legislation that gets passed or stop it from getting passed in the first place by having judges that will let through every voting restriction and gerrymandering bill that they can possibly pass go through. Okay, let's come back on to the matter in hand. Is Donald Trump a Manchurian candidate? Because that was a diversion, (laughs) but a a very pleasant one, but it was a diversion from our main topic. So, Mike, we talked about this chasm opening up between, in in the heart of the uh, transatlantic alliance. Let's just have a look at one of the reasons why many people are saying, is Trump working in effect for, for the Russians? I'm going to run through a whole list of geopolitical aims that the Russian state actually has. Very obviously, it wants to attack the US intelligence community and federal law enforcement agencies to undermine their credibility with the American public. Uh, It wants to decimate the State Department. It wants America to pull out its troops from the Far East. Um, It wants Russia to completely pull out of Syria, leaving leaving it just to the Russians. It wants the world to say the invasion of Crimea is a fait accompli. Uh, Russia wants to destabilize NATO. It would like the Americans, uh, let's say NATO, sorry, not to actively defend ex-Soviet countries who are members of NATO, i.e. the Baltics. It has very bellicose language to put towards the European Union. We, We could go on and on and on. Why is it, Mike, that... The president of the United States is lockstep behind these aims, of which the Russian state would see as one of their existential reasons to uh, project power in the early 21st century. Why is it that this one man who happens to be the president of the United States is so in line with Russian geopolitical aims? 
I think you're quite right in what you're saying that um, the evidence before us is that uh, Trump is is very much Putin's man. Caveat I put on that is... Look, one minute though, Mike. Uh, let's just not say that he's Putin's man. Why is it that somebody, a Western businessman, which is what Trump is, an American businessman, can be so behind these set of aims which feel so anti-Western and consensual? The very basis of NATO, just to use one example, is Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all. And Trump, the president of the United States, is going, Macedonia, eh, who cares, type of thing. Well, I think you're seeing things uh, from a, a bigger picture perspective than maybe Donald Trump himself is seeing it from. Because Donald Trump, as we all know, uh, he's a, a businessman, he's a greedy man. And he's a vain man. So if you appeal to his vanity and make him think he's uh, the best guy in the world, he's a sucker for that kind of thing. So that then gives you leverage to put ideas into his head. It's long been known from, from this side of the pond that uh, Donald Trump's best friend is the last person he ever speaks to. He was hurling insults at uh, North Korea only a few months ago. And then suddenly he's, he's over there shaking hands. He's long been associated with Russia in terms of financial transactions uh, from himself and from his family, as far as I'm aware. So he has, uh, if you will, friends in Russia who have his ear, uh, who can uh, make suggestions to him about things like, uh, as you say, NATO. The main thing that uh, the main line that Donald Trump seems to be taking about NATO is financial, that they aren't contributing as much as he would like. But he sees it as a as a as a, a debt, a, a zero sum game, that they're not paying enough and he's paying too much. Therefore, there is an, an imbalance. But I don't personally think Donald Trump has the um, the worldview that's sophisticated enough to understand what's going on, and that it's merely that he's being he's having things whispered into his ear. Okay, Amanda, who's whispering things into his ear? Surely. Uh, with a man who is so Teflon that he can survive every kind of scandal and we're hearing that, you know, we can na now physically hear his voice on one of those Cohen tapes where he's very clearly saying, I'm going to pay with cash to play off some Playboy uh, star, that it's not a P-tape that the Russians have on him. It's surely financial dealings. It's financial shenanigans. It's financial skullduggery uh, that Putin has on him because of his many business dealings um, in Russia. That can be the only reason why Donald Trump is prepared, prepared to put Russia first and America second, surely. I mean, why can't it be both? <laughs> I, I, that's what I say. Um, I do think what we learned today with the Michael Cohen tape is that what we've known for a long time, which is that Donald Trump is actually blackmailable on the sexual stuff. I mean, that's the whole point is he paid off Stormy Daniels. He paid off this Playboy model. There's other rumors of play payoffs that he's given to women in order to keep their stories about sexual encounters with him out in the news. So the fact of the matter is, if you have such blackmail against him, we know for a fact that he will pay your blackmail, right? So it could be that. But I agree, there's probably financial stuff. There's a reason he won't release his tax returns. And I do think that one thing Republicans are worried about is as soon as Democrats get into the House of Representatives in January that one of the first things they're going to do is subpoena his tax returns. Um, and I, I look forward to that day very strongly. Because I, I do think be a very interesting it. day from both uh, sides of the pond, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trump has got many advantages over another kind of scandal-ridden president, which is President Nixon. Uh, like He had, what, some two years of, of scandal. It started off uh, as being quite uh, a transformative figure in American politics, Nixon goes to China, etc., and then ends up the last couple of years, he couldn't do anything for, for one scandal uh, arising out of Watergate. But Trump has Fox News, doesn't he? And a right-wing radio, social media, and a partisan blogosphere. Mike, in the UK, the Sun newspaper once said it was a Sun what won it for Thatcher. 
you know, I think it's the 1987 election. Very true. Is Fox going to be the reason why this president is not going to be impeached unless the Democrats uh, take both houses in the fall? Well, I think you are heading in a very, very dangerous direction at the moment. Yes, with Fox and, and right about before it. If I get the quote correctly, uh, this week uh, in one of his rallies, Donald Trump said, the things you are seeing and reading about are not what's happening, which is a terrifying thing because it's suggesting that anyone except for Fox News, which obviously he would always say is, uh, is the, uh, the valid source of news, that anyone else, whatever they say, is not to be trusted. And much of his fan base, certainly from, from the rallies that we see, believe that. And there was a very uh, scary bit from the um, Trump uh, Putin press conference uh, that, that was on the news last night on, over in America, that uh, there was live video of the press conference and a Russian reporter asked President Putin in a, in a press conference uh, in Russia, a Russian reporter asked, did you want President Trump to win the election? And did you direct any of your officials to help him do that? And President Putin said, yes, yes. Uh, as that transcript has got over to the official White House um, publication, those questions have been altered to make it sound like that wasn't what was asked of President Putin and it wasn't what he said, which is a, is a Soviet era type of news management uh, in my eyes that the, the White House is now in the, in the process of editing live news footage, which obviously in this day and age is very difficult for them to do because people can find the actual original footage and say, no, this is what was said. But as I understand it, the official White House transcript avoids touching on whether a reporter asked Putin whether he wanted Donald Trump to be president. So if, if they can manage that kind of news, and Fox will certainly push that line, uh, if Trump would want, uh, wants it to, it makes it very difficult to get the truth out there. Amanda, let, let's end up with you uh, on this. recent poll on your side of the pond basically said, do you think there was Russian interference in the 2016 election? Uh, registered voters, 70% said yes, 23% no. Is it safe to say that the 23% all watch Fox News? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're the most popular cable news network in in the country, and they've been all over the place in terms of what their messaging is on this, which I think is not necessarily a sign that it's ineffective. I think that they realize that just flatly denying it is not going to work, so instead they're sending all these confusing signals um, and letting people just kind of believe whatever they feel they want to believe, and... It's an interesting and open question, and I don't know that we're going to know the answer anytime soon what all this means, like how much the line is going to affect people, how stubborn people are going to be about believing something that is obviously untrue, whether that's going to make a difference in the elections. I, I think after November, we'll have a, a better idea of what all this means. One of the lessons of the last couple of days is how thin the line can be between government loyalists and rebel. When policies can shift within the space of a few hours, MPs considered friends of the whips could quickly find themselves foes. I'm quite sure in my own mind that if we got to the point where it was clear there was no deal, that there would be a major political crisis. And I think that in those circumstances, Parliament would assert its authority. That might mean the breakup of the current party system, but as I've said on many occasions, there is no possibility that I, as a member of Parliament, would accept going along with a line which said that we had to accept no deal and drop off the right. cliff, so because the consequences economically and for our national security would be so serious. I think that there were many in political parties who won't put their heads above the parapet. Right. But the evidence suggests to me that if it comes to the crunch, there will be a substantial majority in Parliament seeking to do something to prevent a no-deal right. Brexit taking place. what can they actually play. do? I mean, it will be a major political crisis. Right. Either the government will have to change its position, or the government might fall. That could precipitate a general election. Or that could precipitate the, the Queen going to someone else to form or, a caretaker government. Or it government. could be a, a caretaker or national government being formed. Because I'm the first to accept, if we have paralysis, we can't disregard 
the public's vote in the referendum two years ago. So th these are really complicated matters, and I'm the first to accept this is a, a terrible hole into which our country has got us. Last week saw the government win by the narrowest of margins an amendment that was in opposition to its own checkers plan of a softish, cuddlier Brexit fudge. This has led Anna Soubry, Nicholas Soames and Dominic Grieve to suggest an all-party national government might be necessary. Mike, the country's screwed. We, we, we're running this place like it's a banana republic. Are they right? Um, I think... Uh in terms of achieving something and getting us out of the mess that we're in, yes, they are right. Um, it's clear now. I, I mean, there have been news reports today uh, that you may well have seen um, over the past 24 hours that the government is now preparing to stockpile or to ask businesses to stockpile food, to fly in medicine and stockpile that, and to put tankers in the Irish Sea with generators on to keep the electricity flowing in, the nor in Northern Ireland. Uh, and let, these let, are all because of the Brexit process. All right, Mike, we're heading, Mike, uh, let, Mike, I'm going to stop you, right? So what you said to me sounds somewhat apocalyptic and pretty scary, but Theresa May, our Prime Minister, has said the people should take reassurance and comfort from the fact that the government is planning for a no-deal Brexit and then doing all of the things of which you've just said. So I'm feeling pretty chill right now that we've been told to stockpile food. No, no so we don't need a national government then, do we? It's, 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 it's happy days. <laughs> there were nearly riots in the street when we ran out of uh, carbon dioxide a couple of weeks ago because people couldn't get beer. So I think uh, once you find people queuing outside <laughs> for food... Uh, things will get very heated very rapidly because, not because these things may happen, because if we go for the hard Brexit that uh, some people in the government, a very small minority of people in the government want, will come to pass, but because the people who want this to happen spent two years telling us that this would be the easiest uh, negotiation in history and will be over in an afternoon. Some of those people, uh, Debbie Davis and Boris Johnson, have obviously since left yeah. government but that's because their stated aim for leaving government is that we are not doing Brexit hard enough, which is, is, is insanity. I agree with you that the only um, real way to save the country, in, from, from my perspective, I'm very much a, a Remainer. I very much want to stay in, in the EU if Dude, we can. if you were a Remainer, out. you wouldn't be on this podcast, I'll tell you that. Okay, no. thanks <laughs> for that. I take that as a given. <laughs> but the trouble on. we have is is the way that Parliament is made up. There are some technical reasons that make it very, very difficult to to get to uh, a national government. And I can go into those if you'd like me to. Uh, uh, please do. I, 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 you know what? I'm going to kick off my slippers, right? I'm going to pull up my cocoa next to me. Uh, feel free, sir, to explain away the reasons why technically this is a hard thing for us to have a national government. Because I always thought that Parliament was supreme in the United Kingdom and that actually, collectively, MPs had the whip hand and really they are the font of all power. So in my head, theoretically, it's it's relatively easy if you can get through the party structure. But tell me I'm all wrong, Mike. Uh, you wouldn't have been wrong had we had a, a larger majority government. Theresa May made the disastrous decision last year to have an election, ended up with a much reduced majority based on her asking for a stronger mandate for Brexit. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of that, a small group uh, who are known as the ERG, the European Research Group, who are um, primarily uh, Tory MPs, uh, about 50 or 60 of them, are holding government to ransom. They want the hardest possible Brexit. Let, let, me, let, let me stop you there, Mike. I always see these numbers of the ERG being like 50 to 60, but then I read other places that actually it's much less and it's not such a, a cohesive body as the popular press would like us to believe, that actually the numbers are more like 30. Um, I think you may be right insofar as, well, they're very secretive for a start. They're not willing to <laughs> make a big noise about who uh, who they are beyond their uh, very uh, top echelons. A guy called Jacob Rees-Mogg, I'm sure you're aware of, he's kind of heading the group. But uh, around the periphery of the hardcore ERG group are a group of MPs who are, um, either for reasons of uh, their own personal conscience or reasons of uh, their own seat 
uh, in Parliament uh, supporting Brexit because they've been constantly told if they don't support what is, was at the time seen as one of the people, they will be voted out at the first opportunity. That goes against the logic of what happened last year when actually, in terms of the vote for Remain or Leave constituencies, uh, the vote moved significantly away from hard Brexit, but it gave power to the ERG because um, the Conservative uh, makeup of the party uh, is such that 48 names, if 48 people write to the head of the Conservative Party demanding a change of leader, there will be a leadership contest. And that is a sort of Damocles that they managed to hold over Theresa May's head for the past 18 months. That is, uh, as I'm sure you're actually aware, uh, when you're asking me the questions, that is why the government amended its own white paper last week with amendments that made illegal some of the things they'd put into it and made it much, much harder to get a deal with Europe because the ERG threatened to remove Theresa May and to have a general election. This is where the problem comes because most MPs, most Tory MPs certainly, want to um, put party loyalty above all else. So if the government takes a particular line, they may disagree with it and they'll shout loud, and many have, but ultimately they will side with the government uh, because party loyalty trumps all else. The ERG have openly said and said last week, if you vote against these amendments, we will have a leadership contest and there will be a general election in two weeks. Right. OK. I'm going to look at this from, a, from another perspective. Right. But let's start with that. So the ERG is this cabal. It's a good word to use because it makes them sound kind of evil, <laughs> which is what they, they are. are. Right. Uh, a cabal of Tory politicians who believe fundamentally in a no deal or at least hard Brexit solution. Yes. Yes. It's, it's one or the other. Right. And they have in their the wind in their sails is the Tory dominated press. And they actually shout much louder than their raw numbers. So I said I read that it was really only like 30 actually committed ERG uh, members. Uh, whilst you were talking, a uh, quick uh, Wikipedia, you are indeed right. The subscribers to the ERG is more like uh, 50 to 60. Um, but there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some who are not as that fanatical as Jacob Rees-Mogg and could be talked into um, a warm, softer, cuddlier kind of Brexit as long as it's called Brexit. All right. So that's maybe where I'm getting that there's this hardcore rump of about 30 odd and whatever. So there are a rump of Tory MPs who believe in either a no no deal or the hardest of hard Brexits. Then what you have in Parliament, because they're just members of Parliament, of which there is 650-odd, is the majority, which is across the benches, who actually believe in a soft Brexit or a no Brexit. But what they don't have, but they are split between the two major parties, of which there are many more on the Labour side than there are Tories, and what they don't have is um, much popular press behind them. And they feel hidebound by the referendum decision that the people have spoken. So looking at it from that perspective, what you have in Parliament is no majority for any real clear vision of the future. That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the whole place is um, is gridlocked at the moment. I mean, um, there are actually six parties uh, in, in Parliament. Um, the Conservatives and Labour being the, by far the largest. Then you've got the SNP and the Liberal Democrats and the Democratic Unionists. But in reality, there are two parties in Parliament. There are Leavers and there are Remainers. Um, unfortunately, the government itself, um, oh, the government historically, has... Uh, tied its own hands with the thing called the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which means... But, but that's uh, a bollocks, though, isn't it? Because she managed to call that election in the last cycle uh, by just going to Parliament saying, would you like to have an election? And Parliament said yes, at least at all. Yes. You know, so, and actually you realise that the opposition can never say no. 
So exactly this, that, but the opposition can't force it. That's the problem. Jeremy Corbyn could get more votes and, in fact, win a vote of no confidence with, with the right parliamentary mechanics uh, against Theresa May. It wouldn't force an election because you need a two-thirds majority in Parliament. Now, the way you can get it, as you said, is that Theresa May, being the Prime Minister, can say, I want an election any time I want. And her party is on, it's going to be whipped to go along with her. And obviously the opposition parties will be mad to refuse that uh, request. And therefore the Prime Minister, yes, can call an election whenever she wants. Anyone else who wants to force an election can't do it without two-thirds majority. And that presents a big problem. Mm. Um, it would be an extreme measure, but we are living in extreme times. Um are we witnessing a realignment of party politics on both sides of the Atlantic? Uh, we've got five Labour MPs who voted last week to save a Tory government. And these are pretty left-wing Labour MPs. Ideologically, they have no truck in terms of substantive policy with the Tory party. But because of this one issue, Brexit, they voted uh, with the government and saved it from defeat. We have Anna Soubry, Tory MP, railing against the hypocrisy, the private hypocrisy of rich Tory MPs who will say privately, yeah, there's going to be unemployment because of Brexit, but I'm going to be all right because I've got a gilt-edge pension and, I've, and, and, I, and I'm rich, so I'm going to be fine. And so what if there's unemployment that uh, gra grabs the country? Amanda, as I've said to you and Mike off, off mic, with this topic, uh, I kind of somewhat struggle to think of an American kind of angle here. But with the fallout, and there has to be fallout to Trump, whether it's in 2020 or 2024, Trump is remodelling the Republican Party, isn't he? He's made it from a, a, a party that believes in free trade to one where... People that shout for tariffs seem to be uh, shouting the loudest and riding roughshod over Republican orthodoxy. Do you think um, that we've seen a slight remodelling of party politics on both sides of the Atlantic? Because of Brexit, there's going to be some, some denouement in British politics. It just has to be that we have talk of new centuries parties. We've got talk of MPs ignoring their front benches etc and then in america you've got democratic socialists winning democratic party primaries in new york there is so definitely something afoot isn't there i think it might be a little bit exaggerated on the left um you know the people that are getting labeled democratic socialists um either they're adopting that label or they're having it imposed on them. When you actually look at their platforms, they are just the liberal left. They are not actually asking to nationalize industry like a proper socialist, right? They just want a, a, a robust social safety net of the sort that, you know, you see in a lot of Western democracies. On the Republican side, it's an interesting question. I think this tariffs thing is unique to Trump. It might have more to do with him being Vladimir Putin's... Uh, man than anything else and that they'll revert back to being a free trade party after he's gone. But I do think there will be long-term repercussions in terms of their alliance with the evangelical right. Right now, evangelical Christians are the sort of base of the Republican Party and they love Donald Trump. But the younger generation of them is, is, is starting to see their elders as hypocrites. They're starting to see them as liars and they're starting to fall away. So I think that in a, in a decade or so, we might be seeing effects on the Republican Party's ability to build a coalition um, that will be pretty profound and hard to predict from this vantage point. Mike, can you just take us through the history of the famous kind of national administration, national government of 1931. If, if you got that off the, off the top of your head, because I must admit, I, I know <laughs> I to do with a, 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 you, you do surprise me, sir. Uh, but have you not done a cheeky Wikipedia before we started the show? Uh, I've been looking more about the, the current parliamentary setup and where it may lead than, than the All historical right. ones. But well, I do know that um, national governments have been pulled together in the past, but uh, they've usually ended up 
uh, history has found very badly against the people that have been involved in them. Yeah. I don't think that would happen in this case, to be fair. I think in 10 years' time, we'll be in a different place to where we are now. And the people that have pushed us towards this will be seen very, very dimly. Uh, All right. Well, Ramsay MacDonald was, a, a lay, was the first Labour Prime Minister. And because of a whole series of debilitating strikes at the start of the uh, recession in the 1930s, um, he broke from his party to form a national administration, a, a national government, and in effect is propped up by Tories and by some Liberals. Um, we don't like the minority party that goes into a coalition in this country, do we? Because Nick Clegg uh, is somewhat kind of vilified as you know, and is seen as uh, propping up the Tories in the last coalition, which is, of course, in 2010. So whilst I hear you that these are extraordinary times and I'd like to believe because as Mick Wright would say, you know, I, I believe in uh, rainbows and unicorns and there's always a bridge in, in London that, um, he believe, that believes he can sell me and I will buy. Even I think that um, whoever the minority party is and he's the vocal spokesman for that minority party going into a national government it's going to be hell to pay with the rest of their party um, when that government is over. Very much so. I think I think the problem you have uh, with, with the the concept of a, a national government, even if it were there were mechanism, and I do there is a mechanism in my head, but even if there was a mechanism, what would the makeup of that party look like? The the two leaders of the two main parties, uh, at least on paper, are, are would be against the whole idea. Again, on paper, Theresa May, although originally a Remainer, is, is now pushing the Leave agenda because she's been pushing behind, admittedly, but that's what she's doing. And uh, from things that we've heard in the news this week, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is, if anything, more keen on us leaving. Um, I think for part of political reasons, I think he's hoping that us crashing out of Europe would bring down the government and allow Labour to sweep into power. So he's hardly likely to give up on that idea to help form a national unity government. As you say, some of the other names in Labour, Chuck Ramona, um, Keir Starmer, David Lamy, are, are names that would come to the fore. But then would you be able to bring in the Tory centrists? Certainly, uh, as you've said, Dominic Grave, Anna Sobre, uh, possibly even Philip Hammond would be willing to approach the centre ground, I think. But whether you would then get enough to get, as I said, the, the two-thirds majority. Well, in fact, I think to form a national government, you'd only need a, a clear majority. But you would certainly need a clear majority. A few votes like we have uh, currently wouldn't be enough. Hmm. We we need the party political conference season to be done, don't we? And that's It's when... going to be a nightmare. It's going to be a shit show. There'll be fighting. Is that a technical, uh, political term? My apologies for the language. No, uh, no, 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 <laughs> no. Um, uh, is this arcane parliamentary language you're using? Is this a, an obscure Latin phrase? Uh, explain shit show, sir. <laughs> well, as I said earlier on, the problem, one of the problems we have uh, with the national government is, is um, that the Conservative Party certainly can trigger a leash of election with a certain number of votes. Uh, right now, Parliament is on holiday, or at least not uh, active, uh, until September. And there are some pressing matters to do with Brexit before then. But shortly after they come back in September, only a few days later, conference season starts, as you say. When conference season starts, the Tory party will one by one line up candidates to replace Theresa May. There's no doubt about it. I think there'll also be troubling Labour because Labour seemed to be um, the Labour leadership, although 70-odd percent, 72, 73 percent, the Labour supporters want uh, a people's vote on the final deal. Uh, the Labour leadership don't want it. And that is, I think, where uh, the crux of the matter lies, that um, the people's vote, if it went against the government, which it certainly would, because the deal that the government's like to come out with will be nowhere near acceptable to, to a lot of people, um, would bring down the government and would probably precipitate the uh, national government that you've been talking about. It's the only mechanism that I can see uh, in, in parliamentary terms that would get to that end. But neither party leader 
wants that to happen. The uh, root and branch uh, membership and the root and branch MPs in Parliament, um, the backbench MPs, will be pushing their leaders very hard at these conferences. The only one that's likely to get away with it is going to be the Liberal Democrats because they're to a man remainers. Cool. Right. On that um, happy note, uh, why don't we <laughs> wind things up by talking about our takeaways of the last seven days. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Away, oh, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism, and, well, hideous racist and far-right views, and it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. It's that time of the show where we reflect, we become philosophical and not just political uh, hacks, so to speak. Mike, (laughs) because we haven't heard from you, I think... When did you come on the show? Was it actually this year or was it last year, Mike? Oh, God. Um, let me think about that. What would it have been? I think it was this year, but it was earlier this year. It uh, was. I've got the recording somewhere, yeah. All right. Okay, good. So, And, and, you're, only, and you're only on because you were retreat, retweeted by, by Donald Trump. That, that's, your, that's, your, <laughs> that's your claim to fame, sir. But anyway, I called him no. a fascist and uh, if only he hadn't proved me right. <laughs> now... Considering that we haven't heard from you for quite some time, sir, I think it's only right and proper that you have first dibs on your takeaway of the last seven days. What can I say about the last seven days? I mean, uh, it's not political. Yes. That's where the problem comes. Well, as... as, as well, uh, haven't you booked your family holiday? That's what you were telling me before. That was your, your breaking news. Off yes, mic. indeed, I have. Uh, it, it's not strictly the last seven days. It's, it's in fact, the, the coming couple of weeks. But, uh, uh-huh. yeah, um, uh, being a Burnley uh, guy... Um, and being a football fan, 
you, my hometown, Burnley, um, have uh, gone into European football competition for the first time in 50 years. So there's a lot of pride around the town. And actually, tomorrow is their first game in Europe, as I say, for over 50 years. Uh, unfortunately, the look of the draw means that um, the team that Burnley drew in the first round from the, the vast number of uh, clubs all the way across Europe uh, was Aberdeen. Uh, which uh, <laughs> is a few hours drive rather than a few hours flight. Um, however, um, if we get through that game, which we're expected to do, of course, um, the next game is against uh, a team from Istanbul uh, in Turkey. And uh, as luck would have it, I will be on holiday in Turkey when that game occurs. So either Aberdeen or Burnley will be playing Istanbul Başakşehir. Besiktas. Um, it's Besiktas. It's not Besiktas. Is no, it not? it's Istanbul. No, it's Istanbul. Besiktas. I've they're never very, heard of them. No, they're a lower team. Yeah, they're, they're not your Galatasaray's or Besiktas's. They're a, a lower league. The the European league that we're in is a uh, <laughs> a second tier, let's call it. But we're very happy to be there. And um, so when the holiday comes in a couple of weeks' time, I will be sitting uh, in a beach bar with a TV set on arguing with some Turkish friends of mine about football instead of spending the past, uh, as I have the past 12 months, arguing with people about politics. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Have you been to Istanbul before? I've not been to Istanbul before. I'm actually going to be on the south coast, a place called Sida, which uh, is a, a holiday resort far removed from uh, all the political turmoil in uh, in Turkey and Erdogan. Uh, but I've been many times there and I have many friends. I haven't seen them for a few years, but I know they'll be there and waiting for me when I get there. And uh, they're very passionate football fans as well. But as you say, it tends to be Galatasaray and Besiktas. Uh, this uh, other team, Istanbul, Bash, I'll try again. Başakşehir uh, are uh, a lower team, so we can we can watch the football without getting too heated about the, uh, the, the differences between the teams, I think, in that one. Amanda, have you been to Istanbul or Turkey before? No, I'm afraid I have not. It sounds lovely, though. I... It's gorgeous. It's red hot. It's hotter than England at the moment. Well, <laughs> the, the heat is one thing it's got going for it, but I've been to Istanbul twice, and I am, as many people know, a proper history bore. That's actually my real love. And it is the one place that I've been to which had every element that I want in a city because I'm a, I'm a committed urbanist. So for me, when I go on away on holiday, I don't really want to go and lie on a beach. I want to see man-made structures. I want to see concrete. I want to see tarmac. I want to see, I want to see human culture. And when you go to Istanbul, the scale of it just blows your skirt up, right? So when you see the Bosphorus, it makes the Thames look like a pond or even the Bay Area just looks like a, like a, like a, a puddle. The Bosporus and that bridge that goes from the European side to the Asian side, you cannot comprehend that in the far distance what you're looking at is still the same city. And then you have the Roman walls, you have the Hagia Sophia, and there are some bits of Istanbul which are so beautiful and ornate and in inverted commas uh, Victorian and European. And then you get this kind of chaos of it being somewhere in between Asia and Europe in terms of culture, traffic, mores, everything. There are minarets. There are, it's just, and it, it, it's so Western. You, there are Russians walking around. There are, it's just a fucking hodgepodge of humanity. And I love the place. And I cannot speak highly of Istanbul as somewhere to go and you can be in one city and you can feel like you've been in I've been in Europe I've been in England I've been in Russia I've been in you know there are uh, Bulgarian neighborhoods there are Greek enclaves that it's just all over the place and it is just a wonderful crazy massive city and I I loved it and and my when I first went was 1996 and um if you the world has got a much smaller place just since then those last 22 years as somebody who's uh, of color and travels throughout the world so when i first went to istanbul in 1996 people be looking at me and staring at me and they'd go they'd, they'd say one of two things amakachi 
and I thought that Amakachi uh, for a second was some Turkish word, but Daniel Amakachi was an Everton footballer, you might remember, Mike, <laughs> who he, just signed to either Galatasaray or uh, Besiktas, one or the other. And because I was black, all these kids would kick footballs to me and go, Amakachi, and start laughing and then run away. Then the other thing they would say was Michael Jackson. There weren't right. black folks that went to Istanbul back then. So awesome. after three days of me being in Istanbul and getting Michael Jackson, ha, 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 ha. Amakachi, ha, 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 ha. I'm in the Great Bazaar and this man ran up to me, looked me in the eye and just said, Nelson Mandela. I've <laughs> never laughed so hard in all my life. And he may have thought it was you. He may have thought. <laughs> it was it was just you know uh, and he just this man just hugged me so much and i'm laughing he's laughing he said nelson mandela nelson mandela it's the only thing he could actually say to me anyway istanbul what an amazing place anyway so i hopefully i'm gonna get some kickbacks from the turkish tourist board for that uh amanda what's been your takeaway the last seven days you know, I, I want to recommend a couple of um, related uh, things I've seen. Um, the mm -hmm. movie Sorry to Bother You and um, the TV show Dietland. You know, they're both kind of political shows, right? But they're both just really funny and surreal kind of science fiction pieces that use a lot of fantasy elements and use a lot of, of strange kind of turns of fancy. And I'm just really delighted to see a kind of return to that 1960s Kurt Vonnegut style science fiction storytelling that you see in these movies, so or this movie and this TV show. So that's my takeaway from the week. Um, if you get a chance to see Sorry to Bother You or the show Dietland, I, I highly recommend both of them. Are they both on Netflix? Sorry to bother you. Is out in theaters right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's made by Boots Riley, who is um, this rapper. It's his first like feature film. He's apparently been working on it for a long time, and it's 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 kind of a strange film about this man who starts off as an encyclopedia salesman and then gets deeper and deeper involved in what amounts to modern day slavery. <laughs> and gene manipulation and all sorts of like satire of like late stage capitalism and, and it's 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 like really high-minded satire it's not um it's not realistic in any way but it, it's really entertaining and really funny and really strange um and the show Dietland is on amc and it's marty noxon who was a um, showrunner and a writer for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and it's based on a novel and it is kind of similar it's a sort of near future sci-fi fantasy political satire about instead of late stage capitalism though that's part of it more like feminism and and w women's sort of status in the 21st century so it's really funny both of them are really really funny and, and actually Sorry to Bother You was filmed in Oakland uh, which I'd completely and utterly forgot about. And Lakeith Stanfield was in Atlanta. He was absolutely brilliant in that. And in Crumbs, what was that horror movie? Get Out. Where, yes, exactly. He was amazing in that as well. But no, no, a friend of mine's brother-in-law uh, directed Boots Riley. And when you first said, sorry to bother you, I it kind of was like, what, what, what? It's ringing some kind of bells. But yes, shot kind of in my adopted hometown well the bay area anyway so good recommendation indeed i know that my my friend saw it and um, just about two weeks ago and she said said it was great um so my takeaway of the last seven days is i, I i'm kind of a member of an online forum called the archer single social now i kind of kid myself that i'm part of this because of my love of the archers and the archers is this uh soap opera radio soap opera has been running for some 67 years in the uk and i produce a podcast called dumpty dum which is primarily well not primarily which is about us analyzing every week what happens on the archers so it's kind of my job 
to whenever there is a forum to do with the archers to kind of give it half a look half an eye on it and just see what people are talking about and then maybe mention it in the show but this forum is just lovely the demographic of an archers listener and I hate to say I'm kind of half in the demographic now, but he's definitely middle England. So you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s. Uh, you're a bit of an old duffer. Uh, you're middle class and you, you live in the shires, so to speak. And that is the demographic of an Archer's listener. But somehow there is this group, Archer Single Social on Facebook, and people are just raucous, they're warm, they're lovely. So one of the posts today, a woman just went through the list of requirements that she needs in a man, and she just was pretty raw with it. But then another post today was asking for advice of what to do with a teenage daughter that doesn't want to work in the summer holidays but wants parents to, to provide everything with them, well, sorry, for them. It just goes through the whole gamut of people talking about the fragilities of being an adult, a parent, single, looking for love, what to do on the third date, should you wear your best knickers because we all know what's what's about to happen type of thing. And it's just absolutely lovely how honest people actually are. And it's an incredibly warm and, and lovely place. And I just want today look at it and invariably somebody says something very rude and to the knuckle, but, but warm and people respond accordingly. And it's just a great thing to behold. So I don't suppose there are many people listening to this podcast that are a, into the archers and then also single. But if you are, please go on to Facebook and sign up for the Archer Single Social because it's lovely. There's like 500 people on there and you'll have a lot of fun. And you'll believe that you're generally with friends. Yes, Mike, go. I do do actually know there are a couple of people, certainly a a number of people on my uh, Twitter feed Uh who are Archers fans because I see their tweets popping up uh, on a Sunday morning quite often. Um, I don't know their uh, I, I don't know their status, but I'll find out for you, and uh, I'll what, point what, them at the Archer's single social. D- don't find out for me. Just tell them to get on there. <laughs> you well, know, I'll, I'll point them at that anyway because uh, what, certainly one of the guys who I do converse with a bit on Twitter, uh, he's a he's a huge Archer's fan. It's part of his his Twitter uh, shtick is is uh, comedy. He writes, he, he's a Dylan Murray journalist, mm-hmm. but. Um, so, uh, but he's, he does entertainment things, and he always on a, on a Sunday morning there is a, 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 an Archer's Twitter feed. So, oh, Archer's single social. It's a thing of Your legend, watch. Amanda. One of the things which I'm determined to do is to get you into the Archers. I don't think <laughs> you can be a mature political writer and to understand our wonderful country, uh, the United Kingdom, without dipping your toe into Archer's waters. So what I'm going to do off mic via email, I'm going to ping you a little link to an episode of the Archers. Get your teeth round that, as we'd say in England, and you I'm, will become I'm very, a very sorry, Amanda. folks thank you for bearing with us um this this show is going to be out a little bit late because i'm going to have to make a few edits thank you for bearing with us as always this has been mid-atlantic and it's nice to hear the soft northern tones of uh, mike holden with us uh mike how can people catch up with you on the twitters on twitter it's mike holden 42 that's mike holden 42 it's a lot more sweary than I've been today and uh, a lot more serious but um, I do tend to throw in some uh, headlines of the day is is one of my favourites if there is an astounding amusing headline it'll appear on my Twitter feed so Mike Holden 42 Awesome and Amanda how can people catch up with you on the socials? On Twitter I'm just Amanda Marcotte um, and you can also visit my website salon.com I'm a senior political writer there Coolio and of course folks uh, grammatically uh, incorrect tweets abound if you want to go on to at Royfield uh, we are mid-Atlantic we're the left of centre nice people trying to make the world a better place for all concerned see you all again soon in approximately 14 days time bye 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 I'm just out here surviving and what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Oh, baby, baby, it will always matter. Oh. you said you fixed that. Get a room. I got a room, mother.
cash. How much longer I gotta wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you wanna hog it to yourself and your family and- Me and my family? Yeah. Cash is I'm your fucking uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, Mr. Davidson. Cash is green here. Sorry to bust. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Going upstairs, power caller. They even have their own elevator. Welcome, power caller. I hope you did not masturbate today. We need you sharp and ready to go. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling it, but we sell it. No, well, there's no amount of money that'll make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash, I'm gonna make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering you. Cash, you are awesome. Oh, yeah. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.